right, so today we're going to talk about what we think the most interesting thing in business is that we observed in 2021. So, group, what do you think? Cal, what was the most interesting business observation you made this year? Well, there are a lot of interesting developments in 2021, Glenn, but uh, I, since I'm kind of planted in the world of finance and accounting, that's, that's where I'm going to draw from. And I'm going to say it's kind of the return of inflation and the fact that for most of the younger generation of business owners and managers, you know, we've never had to manage in environments of high inflation before. And so almost, you know, may not even know exactly what inflation is. You know, it's kind of the, the cost of, you know, buying your groceries, the cost of paying your people, the cost of the debt that you borrow, kind of the prices and cost of things just going up much more quickly than we're used to. So I remember when I graduated from college and joined the workforce in the late 90s, I think banks were paying somewhere around 3 or 4% interest on savings accounts. And your mortgage rate was maybe seven or eight point something percent. And that was considered pretty average. And if you studied some history, you knew like in the late seventies or early eighties, we had inflation rates running, you know, 50% or hundred percent higher than that. But if we only have a perspective of the last 12 to 15 years, since the mortgage meltdown, you know, 2007, 2008, we're pretty used to interest rates being, you know, very low single digits and earning next to zero on cash balances, you know, mortgage rates getting down into the three to 4% range. And now, you know, if you look at, if you believe the numbers coming out and, you know, you just look at your grocery bill and your fuel bill, costs are definitely increasing much faster than that now, which has a lot of implications for how we manage businesses, right? We've got to figure out how to price our goods and services to keep up with rapidly rising costs. We've got long-term contracts. We've got to figure out how to lock in cost rates that are consistent with the long-term pricing that we might have to lock in. We've got valuable people to pay. So how frequently do we need to do salary reviews and how large do those salary raises need to be so that they can keep up with the inflation in their own cost of living. We've got excess cash. That's now a very much more of a depressing asset. So what does that mean for you know, distributing cash out of the business into owners so they can get it into appreciating assets instead of a bank account paying 0% interest while the cost of living is going up five, six, seven, eight percent a year. And so there are a lot of these challenges that I think we're facing, you know, as a business community for the first time in, in well over a decade. They're all concerned about what they should forecast and budget for salary raises in 2022. And so that's a balancing act of what the business can afford to what the market requires so that you can keep and retain good people. And, you know, if you do that, if you assume you need to give a certain level of salary increase, then what does that mean you need to price at and how we go about, um, you know, lining up your pricing with the cost of your people, especially in service industries. So that's one thing where we're really helping clients work through. And then others that are in a fortunate position of being solidly cash flow positive or receiving large PPP loan forgiveness that they didn't fully spend that they still have sitting in a bank account or, you know, advising them to keep some kind of a healthy cash reserve in the business, but make sure they're distributing out the excess cash and, and getting it into long-term retirement savings or college savings plans for their kids or something where it's invested in stocks or potentially real estate or other assets that will appreciate in price. Yeah. I've never experienced anything quite like this. I mean, in my life, I've had certain things get more expensive, right? You know, we've all seen gas prices rise and fall and rise and fall, but for everything to go up at the same time, it's very unique. And it seems, or at least in my life's 
lifetime. As you were you know, saying, Calvin, it, it's really impacting pretty much all businesses across the board because all areas of, of cost for them are all going up at the same time. And I think the flip side of that is it makes it harder for the, the consuming side of B2B to pay more, right? But then the, the service providers that are working B2B, they have to raise their rates and it's creating this kind of vicious pinching cycle for everybody. We want to avoid talking about religion and politics, but I would just highlight that, you know, the people who have enough retirement savings to be uh, invested in the stock market to a significant extent are seeing major gains in their portfolio and their net worth, while those who don't have um, significant savings invested in the stock market, you know, kind of disproportionately not participating in, in this increase in asset values. And especially with private equity firms that can lock in fixed price, long-term debt, you know, they have the opportunity to really profit from, you know, long-term fixed price debt with a heavily inflationary environment on the asset value side. And Mindy, what are you seeing in, in your business with your customers on the, on the investment side related to to, uh, inflation. Everybody's concerned about inflation for sure. Stocks have been a great hedge for inflation. If we look back over the last 10 to 15 years, inflation was only about one and a half percent or so for about 10 years. So it was really low. And when we do uh, planning for clients, we always use a, a, a much higher average. So we've always used around between two and a half and 3% as an average inflation number going forward. So from a planning perspective for the clients that we work with, we're not concerned that we've under forecast long-term inflation for them. I think that um, what we're seeing now is, you know, there's always going to be a return to the mean, I, I feel like with different things. And so I think this year is, you know, sort of working towards that, right? So I think on average, if you look over a long period of time, inflation's around 3% or so, and we've just seen it be historically low. So it's coming back up. So not, not a huge surprise. Stocks have, you know, benefited uh, from these low interest rates and uh, bonds are negative for the year. Muni bonds are positive for the year, but but traditional bonds are negative for the year. Um, and they've been a drag on portfolios. Nobody, nobody expects their bonds to be negative. So that's been an interesting conversation. Um, as interest rates rise, bond prices go down. But clients are concerned about keeping up with inflation and um, dividend paying stocks are a good way to keep up with inflation. Uh, real estate investments. We have a lot of clients that own their own real estate or alternative investments that own real estate or will own REITs through their portfolios that keep up with um, inflation. But you know, when we, what we look at is what we're forecasting, what a client's growth rate needs to be to be successful. And we've been exceeding that. So okay. I, I haven't found that people are overly concerned, but from a business owner perspective, I think you're absolutely right. I think the conversations I've been having with other business owners are um, because costs are increasing and, and people are having, having to increase their, their fees to their clients uh, or their costs for the things that they provide. I think being able to really explain and show your value is really important, right? I don't think someone minds paying more for something that they're getting a lot of value for. So I think making sure that you can increase your fees to keep up with keeping great employees, right? I think all of us care about having a really an A team when we're working with our clients. And so um, I think being able to, I think it's important to be able to show the value that you provide, especially when you're asking for higher um, fees from your clients. Matt, with all this going on in the markets, what are you seeing or feeling the the direction is going for the M and A the M and A world? It, you know, which stands to 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 make sense for me that you know at least in the private equity space, a lot of their investments are growing. And it's going to make more capital and maybe make them hungry to take 
more businesses to IPO. Um, what are you seeing on your side in M&A world? You know, the, the few examples that I'm involved in right now, <clears throat> I'm seeing a lot more discussion from buyers um, around risk to employees and attrition. Um, I think that they're looking to, to you know, put in more clawbacks for if teams leave and put put the pressure on business owners to try to you know retain their employees. I haven't had a lot of discussions about inflation with these folks, um, but I think that's in the back of their mind. And I think they're, you know, from a macroeconomic standpoint, they're being affected, but at a micro level, it's really, all right, should I, do I need to hire those four people back? Can I, can I make do with three? And can I even find those three? And, you know, now that they're thinking about selling or they're in the process of selling, a lot of the discussion has been around, you know, how do I keep these customers? How do I keep these employees? And, I think also getting getting attention right now with buyers is tough because there's so the, just the velocity of M&A, you know, the peak in 2019, we're probably going to exceed that. So getting getting the attention uh, right now is is tough. There's so many deals that are trying to get done by the end of the year. And most of the deals I'm working on are going to be done in the next couple months. And luckily, they're close to LOI or they're, they're post LOI, but I wouldn't want to go to market right now with a new with a new deal. It's It's pretty crowded. All right. So continuing with our theme of uh, what have we seen in this past year and what are we seeing here at the end of the year? Mindy, what are you seeing your clients doing to take advantage of the situation and the timing of the year as far as their portfolios are concerned? You know, I think people feel really grateful that the markets have been generous, right? The markets have done really, really well, and we've seen a, a large appreciation in their portfolios. And I and I think now more than ever, nonprofits are really um, needing help. And so what, what we've really spent a lot of time on in the last few months is donating appreciated stock to charity. You know, a lot of our clients are charitably inclined. They feel like their portfolios have really given them more than they expected. And they're, they're being very generous, whether they're giving directly to charities um, or they're using uh, appreciated stock to fund donor advised funds that they can use for future giving. Um, and so that can offset, you know, like if a client had a sale this year uh, and they have a large capital gain, if they donate a chunk of money or, a, or appreciated stock to a donor advised fund, they get that full deduction this year, as long as it's 30% of their AGI. So um, we've been really working hard with clients to look at what's most appreciated in their portfolios, take advantage of that tax opportunity to donate appreciated stock. Um, and help the charities that they really care about. And, and that, that feels really great for both us and clients. And for, for the clients that we uh, work with that are retired, uh, there's something called qualified charitable distribution. So if you're over 70, you can donate up to $100,000 to charity and not pay any tax on it. it, doesn't even hit your tax return. So for clients of ours who don't need the required minimum distributions because they've been successful, they've sold businesses, they have other money to use, um, we've seen a lot of money going to charity, and that's been really um, fun to work with clients on. The other thing that we've seen clients uh, or we've been working on with clients is tax loss harvesting opportunities. You know, it's never fun when um, when a part of your portfolio is negative for the year or you have a negative return. Um, but, you know, for example, emerging markets has had a rough year this year. They've uh, the emerging markets is down anywhere between six and eight percent. So to be able to to do tax loss harvesting and realize that lost year this year that can offset other gains that we had um, or that we can use in the future to offset future gains. I think tax loss harvesting really uh, adds a lot of value long term to a client's portfolio and increases their after tax yield. Yeah, so, Glenn, I'd, I'd also add that, um, you know, there's uncertainty around what the tax rates will be over the next year or two. Um, there's general consensus they're probably going up, but 
how much is still to be determined. And so at the end of the year, you know, if there could be a material difference in taxable profit in 2021 versus 2022 or versus 2023, um, then it is important to, you know, go through an exercise of considering what the marginal tax rates are likely to be in the next couple of years, a couple of different scenarios. Um, a lot of small businesses, as we know, pay taxes on the cash basis. And so they have some flexibility in terms of managing their year-end cash balance through how quickly customers pay them or how quickly they pay vendors um, payables. And so that's something that's you know, important to think about for folks who are in higher tax brackets who could be looking at material differences in their tax rates over the next couple of years. That's a great point, Cal. And and what we've seen, what we've been doing a lot of as well is Roth conversion. So if, if a client is under the 24% tax bracket, which is around 330,000 for a couple, um, we have been converting up to that 24% tax bracket into, into Roth because we do believe that long-term tax rates are likely going up and we're able to see a client's long-term um, spending and things like that to forecast where they're going. But I think there's a huge opportunity now before any of the tax laws either revert back in 2025 to, to what we used to have or get changed because of a, a a law changing in Congress, but I think there's a huge opportunity for that. They're talking about backdoor Roth IRAs going away. And what that is, is when, if you have all your money in your 401k, you don't have any outstanding IRAs, you can make an after-tax contribution to an IRA and then immediately convert it to Roth. Um, and we do that for a lot of our clients who aren't eligible to make direct Roth contributions because they make too much money. Um, and they're talking about that going away next year. Um, so, uh, you know, right now you have to get that done before 12, before December 31st. That's not something that you can do up until the tax deadline of April 15th. So I think if you don't have any outstanding IRAs, you know, I know it's only $6,000 if you're, you know, under 50 or 7,000 if you're over, but, you know, every little bit, uh, makes a difference. And one thing we've also seen a couple of clients do is set up Roth IRAs for their children. Once their children get old enough to do some sort of work for the business, they can get paid as you know, an employee or an independent contractor with zero to very low tax rates on you know, a few thousand dollars a year of earnings, but whatever earned income they have can be contributed into a Roth IRA and then compound tax-free and effectively be removed tax-free because children making a few thousand dollars a year pay no tax. It doesn't flow through to the parents' income tax returns as long as it's below the taxable threshold. So, you know, for families that are well off enough to, to do that and get their children on payroll in their small business, it can be a way to very tax efficiently transfer some funds to their children. We see that as well. Good point. My observation for 2021 is where did all the workers go? I'm not seeing a ton of people I know or anybody really right now who's not employed, but there's so many industries that are shorthanded on staff. And then, uh, of course, the great re resignation has people coming and going and people are really working hard to try to recruit the right candidates. So I just have a hard time believing it's because of stimulus checks, people aren't going to work because it seems to be really, really, you know, highly skilled, highly compensated jobs all the way down to entry level work. What do you guys, what have you been seeing? What are your thoughts on that? One of the studies I saw was certain hiring software has been filtering out employees and one static or one, one metric was 10 million workers are being filtered out. So 
I think that, you know, the sophistication of some of these software platforms, you know, jobs you might've gotten in the past because you interviewed well, you might not be even interviewing for because you don't get to that stat, that stage. Another thing I saw was an Indeed study uh, that showed that 92% of people that they interviewed said that they were looking for a job that they were passionate about. So I think everyone's has sort of sat back. They've had some time to think they, they want to retire or they're, they're stressed out or they want to find something they're passionate about, or their background just doesn't match the algorithm of the of the hiring manager. Yeah, that's interesting about the, the algorithm piece, because I think that we may have created a vicious cycle of poor hiring practices, poor applying practices. There's a whole generation that, you know, started with monster.com and has gone all the way up to Indeed. And it's like, uh, you know, we feel like we're trying to to, to find jobs and to find employers on Amazon. And it doesn't really work that well, apparently, right? Like I've been advising my clients for a while now, even before this situation of, you know, when you put out a position, a post in your description, sometimes say no experience required. If you put in, you know, I need five years of this and five years of that. Great. If you can find that person, but I tend to believe that people who really honestly represent themselves will be like, well, I only have four years of that, so I won't apply. And then somebody who's full of it with none of that will apply anyway. So you're almost kind of shooting yourself in the foot. And I like to tell my clients, you know, you be the judge, lower that bar, have them come into a clean interview process where you can filter out the noise too and, and interview the right people, but leave it up to you. Don't leave it up to the candidate. Because I think more often than not, the good candidates are really honest and eliminate themselves and you would probably hire them in a heartbeat. I also think that we've all had a taste of work-life balance that maybe we didn't have before. Um, for example, I went to my daughter's holiday concert last night. You know, there's no way I would have been able to make it to that in time if, with my previous commute. And I never want to go back to the old way. <laughs> you know, with, with, I mean, my children are still home, but I think that if you can effectively... You, know, you can be productive and you can you you know be able to be there for your children or your spouse we're, we're, we're seeing that you know ways to make that work now if you're say you're right out of college and you're trying to you know start your career i think it's 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 got to be impossible right now because you know how do you get the experience how do you interact with your colleagues remotely i think you're missing you're missing a great deal but if you've already had a, a you know a career and now you're looking to do some work-life balance. It's really hard to go back. I really like the hybrid model. Um, my team, we work remotely mostly, but uh, we were all in the office yesterday and it was really nice to be together. We're going to plan to have some more in-office days than we've been having. I think with COVID spreading and the holidays, we were kind of staying apart uh, because it was COVID was spreading through some different areas that some of our employees were involved in. So just to keep everybody safe, we stayed apart. But I think there can absolutely be a good mix. And I think the other thing that is going to be interesting as we go to hire, I was just looking at a candidate um, who is was really, really experienced and is looking for something different, right? So they were a much higher level and they're willing to take a lower salary and do a job because they're kind of managing a, a family member's health care and they don't want the stress and the high job that they had before. And so kind of rethinking about you know, okay, well, they're willing, you know, not discounting someone because you're like, oh, they have too much experience or they wouldn't be right for this role. This role would bore them to tears. Um, you know, having these open conversations about people who just want to make a real change. They want a job that's not as stressful. They're willing to take lower pay. 
um, you know, for flexibility or for a job that, you know, that they're probably overqualified for, but they're okay with that. So we should be okay with that, you know, too. And just thinking about, you know, I think there's a lot of people that have been good savers and they don't need to earn the incomes that they had been earning. And they are looking for a little bit more freedom or doing something that's more aligned with what they care about. So, you know, as employers, I think, it, you know, we're, we're going to, it's going to be a different hiring process. We're going to be needed to look at it a little bit differently. I also heard of um, SockGen, a uh, company in France, was actually starting to use technologies to track where employees were. I mean, this is a big company example, but they're using infrared sensors to, to sort of see where butts were in seats where people were in conference rooms and at the aggregate now they can make you know decisions on where to put resources and facilities based on human behavior so i think you might see a lot more of that just just you know taking people's word for it or now trying to get metrics around that that hybrid model is going to be interesting yeah i see some different approaches you know if the hybrid model is here to stay and i think it is and you know i i work from home and you know, I have one one staff member's Latina. She works from home, but it would be nice to, you know, have an office for us to go to someday. Although, you know, we can go to each other right now and, and use third party places like we work or other people's conference rooms. But, you know, when I start thinking about that and I start thinking about what you were just talking about, Mindy, I just kind of look towards the future. If I was going to go get office space now, it would really be focused on the group activities and not the individual workspaces. Like I'm not, you know, building out desks for everybody. And I mean, I was never a cubicle guy anyway, so that's not going to happen. But, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to spend the money and rent the space, I want it to be something that I don't have access to, right? I have access to a desk and a couple of monitors and a camera and a microphone. I don't need to go somewhere to do that, but a, a big, a big conference room or uh, theater or, you know, basketball court. I can have Rudnick come down. We can play whole cans basketball and really get into it. Something fun that is, you know, a net-net add to the experience that you can't get working from home and you wouldn't get in the previous, you know, uh, office configuration. Yeah, I think when there is actual in-person human interaction, we appreciate it a lot more now. And you try to maximize that time. Like the discussions I've had with folks about their holiday parties in the office, they're putting a real priority on that because some of them haven't seen each other in months. If they get together for lunch, you know, once a week, it's a priority and there's an agenda. It's not, it's not informal. It's, you know, trying to figure out what we're losing through the high model and how do you make up for that in a short chunk of time? And I think younger employees, I think younger employees in particular benefit from being face-to-face some. So, you know, the mentoring that can be done because they haven't had the experience that we have where we feel strong in our careers. We've been doing this for a long time. We have connections to other people. They haven't built those connections yet or anything like that. And so I think being in the office, having that opportunity to sit side by side and work on something together and hear conversations that other employees are having together and things like that is is really impactful to that younger group. I was watching the Beatles special on Disney Plus this week, and it's an example of a creative group getting together and creating something special in person. And I was thinking a lot about how people can do that nowadays. I mean, bands are creating their little their track and they're putting it all together online, but creating that magic together in person, like the Beatles did when they were putting together Let It Be album, even though it was the end of their their group, 
it was amazing to see that creative process in person. And I was thinking, could that have happened if, you know, using the example of a band, rock band coming together and trying to create something. Can teams do that remotely? Do they have to be in person? Is that because it's a creative endeavor that they're a part of? If you're manufacturing something, if you're, you know, different services businesses, what do you lose by being apart from each other? And then how do you really maximize that time together? I think you have to begin with the end in mind, right? So what, what I think about with my team and what I see other people thinking about is what environments are right for the right kind of work. So like the, the retreat that I had with my team a month and a half ago was when we did all the creative stuff and the strategic planning. And it was in person. We rented a house up north. Everybody had their own space. It was a great space to be in from a thinking. We had great views. You know, so thinking about what you're trying to accomplish and what your surroundings are like and what the vibes are in that surrounding, I think is, I think it's important depending on what kind of work you do to your point, whether it's creative work in a lot of our businesses, some of it's technical, some of it's creative and the technical stuff is easy doing from home. And the meetings are almost easier. If you're doing a zoom meeting and you've got your team on it, it's easier for them to be in their own offices. But I, I totally agree with you that we save the creative and brainstorming and those kinds of, we save that work for being together in person. It, I think it works really well if you can do that. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. You know, Zlatina and I have been working together for about a, a year, year and a half and never worked in the same room until a couple of weeks ago. And we, you know, we're doing our, basically our quarterly annual planning on the whiteboard. And I, I hadn't done a whiteboard session in you know, literally years. I mean, yeah, I've done it over Zoom with screen sharing and Google Sheets, but it's just not the same as that collaborative process of scribbling things and crossing stuff out and drawing arrows and circling stuff. And I miss my, miss my flip charts and whiteboards. Matt, was there any other things in 2021 that you observed and you, uh, that you thought was interesting? I mean, we're talking about inflation. I think this minimum wage is interesting because, you know, a lot of companies now are, are struggling with that, whether you're McDonald's or you're, you know, the local restaurant down the street or, or small business hiring, hiring people. It'll be interesting to see how many people are forced back to work regardless of the wage because they, you know, because of the inflationary pressure but like that MIT study says a $15 minimum wage isn't a living wage you know I think people are going to feel that pain even more so it's going to become more acute 